Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So I just got off the phone with Maureen Palmer. She's a filmmaker who used to work with the CBC and has gone out on her own and, and has a company now uh, called Bountiful Films. Check them out online. But her new film, Wasted, is a really personal story. It's about her uh, journey with her partner, Mike Pond, who uh, is an alcoholic and, uh, and came out of a book that they wrote together called Wasted, subtitled An Alcoholic Therapists fight for recovery in a flawed treatment system. It's going to air on CBC's Nature of Things soon with David Suzuki. It's turned into a website. It's turned into so much more than just a book and a film. Uh, it's going to have a life, I think, that's going to continue on for many, many years and going to help an awful lot of people. Please check out uh, not only the podcast that's about to, uh, the interview that you're about to hear, but check out the film. It's called Wasted. Uh, it's online. Uh, soon, and, and the book will be released, I think, in the U.S. in February. So they're basically, I think, Maureen and Mike's ideas to take over the world when it comes to this kind of thing. So I wanted to wish them congratulations. Check it out. Uh, more interviews at davidpecklive.com, rabble.ca. You'll find uh, some other interesting stuff there as well. And thanks for continuing to listen. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest uh, today, Maureen Palmer from Bountiful Films. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Maureen. Thank you for having me. So we're here to talk about, I think, a whole lot of things. Uh, we're here to talk about a film. We're here to talk about a book, uh, your partner, uh, maybe about addiction, uh, mental health issues. Should I keep going, Maureen? The list is endless, isn't it? It really is. I just, you know, first of all, congratulations on the film, which is going to air on, I believe, on the 21st of January, 8 p.m., CBC Nature of Things. Thank you. Yeah, good. And make sure you check out uh, Maureen's website, Bountiful.ca. That's the film company. But there is also a book out there as well called Wasted, an Alcoholics Therapist's Fight for Recovery in a Flawed Treatment System. Wow. I mean, 
So, okay. It's been so, quite the year. No kidding. <laughs> so, so give me some, give me, can, can you connect a few dots here for me? Sure. Um, so I think you'll, you'll find out in the film, I met Mike on the dating website, Plenty of Fish. And he arrived, and we met, he came on public transit, and he ordered a cranberry and soda. And I thought, why isn't he drinking? His mm. spidey senses were immediately tingling. Um, we didn't get into that very much on the first day, but the second date, he spilled the beans. Not all of the beans, but enough to make me go, oh my God, this guy has such a story. Mm. I, you know, it, it, do I want to date him? Not sure, but I've got to find a way to tell him. But story. damn it, I want to make a, a movie together. about him. <laughs> <laughs> The, the movie like was like not really on my horizon. Oh, okay, so interesting. Last, yeah, cool. you know what? Um, my partner at Hel- at uh, Bountiful Films, Helen Slinger, we took a few runs at both the Nature of Things and Doc Zone for CBC. On we've always wanted to do something on alcoholism, hmm. so we'd write our pitch and we'd go to the meetings and we'd say alcoholism, character flaw, or chronic illness, <laughs> right. different pitches, right? And always for whatever reason we got turned down. Hmm. Then Mike and I wrote the book. Somebody gave the book to somebody at the CBC Documentary World. That same, about the same time, I did phone the nature of things and say, hey, you know, uh, when writing the book, we discovered a very personal story about addiction, but also that there's a revolution in research going on that's not translating into treatment yet. Mm. And people should know about that. Hmm. And that's when the nature of things went, that's the story we want. Right. Which is what um, David Suzuki refers to several times throughout is uh, evidence-based treatment. Yeah. You know, the vast majority of treatment, if you can call it that, in North America is not evidence-based. Most treatment centers, I'd say about 90% of them, are 12-step oriented. And they're on a continuum from, you know, low-end, run-down recovery houses like the kind Mike ended up in Mm. to, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a month places. Mm. Now, to be fair to the 12 steps, there is a growing, small evidence base for the 12 steps. Right. And um, the concern for us was there's a a really strong body of evidence that says it really only works for about 30 to 40% of people. So what happens to the other 50 or 60%? Well, they're largely left to be feeling like failures because they, they can't make AA work for them. We saw the urgency for a ex- dramatically expanded toolkit to, to treat addiction. And the reality is we discovered there are things out there that people don't know and, mm. worst of all, doctors don't know. Right. You know, it's really interesting, you know, something that sort of, I just come through some shoulder surgery a couple of months ago, 23 year old injury, looks like it was a huge success, you know, three incisions and they go in with tubes and cameras and lights and I mean, isn't it wonderful? And on one hand you go, wow, this is incredible, uh, this medical community we have here in the West. And yet I also suffer from some sleep issues and I know the trouble that that has caused my doctors and myself getting to the bottom of that. And, and nobody's admitted that they can't fix it really. Um, and yet I've got half a dozen different doctors who have tried. And now what do I find 
I don't know that it's actually making a huge difference, but I find yoga to be one of the most mm. um, satisfying things that I do to sort of calm the mind, et cetera. And, you know, yeah. medication, CPAP machine, test, yeah. te- you know, so I wonder, did you guys find out this idea of these chronic illnesses, these chronic things? Is, is that where things are breaking down? Um, to a certain extent, I think that does play a role in this. I think the bigger issue is that in our society, and our doctors are a reflection of our society, I still think that the, there's a big feeling that this is a moral issue, not mm. a medical one, mm. which is kind of ironic because the American Medical Association and the Canadian Medical Association have both characterized alcoholism as now called substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder as a disease. But they don't treat it like a disease. We don't fund treatment for it. We don't give people compassionate, evidence-based care. We give them a tremendous amount of judgment. The other thing I think that's happening here is Alcoholics Anonymous has been wildly successful for good reason. It has saved millions of lives. It's also been a fabulously successful PR machine. So that, you know, early in the days of AA, it actively cultivated relationships with judges, media, lawyers, doctors, power people in society. The the ripple-down effect of that is that still most doctors believe the go-to treatment for addiction is AA. And they insist their clients go to the detriment of the client and perhaps to their own ignorance that they don't even go and look at what the options might be for new treatments. So it's not necessarily that, that I mean, it's, I, I guess the, the, the thing that stands out to me, you know, uh, it's not either or, right? I mean, it's... It's not. Yeah, it's not. It, and, I thought, and I wondered as I watched your film, uh, which is wonderful, by the way, congratulations on the film. Thank you. But I wondered, oh, geez, are they going to go the whole scientific route again and leave out relationship? Are they going to leave out, you know, the the... the the community-based care. You know, I love the way mm-hmm. you just said, quote, compassionate evidence-based care. That's, that's well, a, it's a great phrase because, I, you know, m- most of the doctors who spoke, we're, you know, they want to talk about research. They want to talk about numbers. They want to talk about evidence. Great. Yeah. Love it. Perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> but, but where does the relational side kick in? And when you say relational, are you talking about my relationship with Michael? Well, partially, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he he says at one point in the film, and I'll find the quote here somewhere. But he says at one point, "I couldn't I couldn't do it without you, right? I wouldn't." No, sorry. The quote is, "I never would have been able to do it alone." And so I that think that's a really r- remarkable statement to make. And so I guess I mean, I don't know, community of friends, community of yeah. supporters. I guess you could say. I think that you know, on the downward spiral. Mike says, he uses the expression, severe alcoholics be people, right? You get to be somebody who can't be relied upon, who lies, who mm-hmm. cheats, who steals. Mm-hmm. And so even though people know, I think a lot of people know on some level, that this is hijack reward circuitry in his brain doing this. It's not, it is not actually him wanting mm-hmm. to do these right. things. Right. But I think it becomes very hard over time for people to forgive that. Like for Mike and I, it was brand new. I didn't have the history with him. I could see his integrity and his mental discipline. Like I've never met anybody more disciplined in my life, which really gives credence to the idea that, you know, he has discipline in every other way. Clearly, he can't use it to stop drinking, so that must be something else. Right. And I actually think, you know, we did rebuild his life together, 
And we had a good, solid relationship before the relapse came. And we were so lucky that the relapse came just when we were learning about community reinforcement and family training or craft. Mm -hmm. Because that's the game changer in my mind. Like, I now know the more you shame and blame and humiliate and give shit to somebody who drinks again, the greater the chance that the relapse will become more serious. Well, there's, I don't, is there any good to be found in the whole idea of guilt and shame? I mean, I Well, just it's amazing, and, you know, you, I think there's a couple of great experts in the film that say it's amazing, you know, if punishment worked, no one would be addicted. Right. And, and right. that, you know, we are very addicted to making people feel bad in our society. And you know what? It's kind of stupid because we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. It is costing us as taxpayers more to perpetuate addiction. <laughs> it's a $700 billion, with a B problem in the U.S. alone annually. Wow. Yeah, wow. tack on that's what just... it costs Canada. And that's, you know, in broken relationships, in health care costs, in social costs, criminal costs, court costs, all because we don't want to actually spend money on what we do for every other illness, which is preventative, swift action, evidence-based care. So we got to talk about the relapse because it's just yeah. so interesting. I want to talk about yeah. that. I want to talk about the, 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 what the relationship must have been like as a filmmaker. This is your partner, yeah. the person you love. How bizarre that would be, you know, p putting a camera on them. And, and this isn't just to tell us about, oh, I don't know, his uh, beautiful craftsmanship as a furniture maker no no you're yeah. going a little deeper yeah. a little more intimate yeah. um a little more intimate than that but for just for a second before we go there talk to me about what why it you know the the, the why why don't we want to see it for what it really is is there are we sort of shining a light in, into our own darkness in in a way does mm -hmm. does that make sense why don't we want to see in, in well, you know, why, why as a society we don't want yeah, to see why, it? Yeah, why do we want to keep seeing it as a moral issue and not necessarily as a medical one? You know, that, that, that polarizing of, of... Oh, interesting. Really interesting question. Um, I think because I think we are very conflicted in our society about alcohol, right? It's so intertwined into everything that we consider to be pleasurable in terms of celebrations. Mm hmm I think on some level, if we can uh, perpetuate the dichotomy that those people are different from us, right. that they've made a conscious choice and, well, I don't have that choice, I don't have that problem, that well, somehow we're better than. Yeah, well, see, this is where I was hoping you wouldn't go, but I, that's kind of what I expected the answer to be, because I, sor I sort of, I think that seems to be the case, right? Don't we, f like, we feel better when, we, when, when we're able to sort of look down whether it's literally or metaphorically yeah, I, on I think others. So. I mean, who hasn't told stories the morning after a party like, oh, did you see so-and-so? <laughs> she's so wasted, right? That's right? Everybody rolls their eyes, go, oh, yeah, one of these days, you know, she's not going to get better until she hits rock bottom. I have said these horrible, judgmental things myself about people. And I think it was so many levels. Mike's relapse was a huge learning opportunity and a very humbling experience. Yeah, I bet. I yeah. bet. Yeah. I really, um, you know, the night he drank, I thought, shit, I wonder what's going to happen to the film. I wonder if the CBC will still want the film. Mm. Maybe they won't consider us to have the credibility to deliver it. Right. You know, all these questions went through my mind, and then I went, oh, well, 
if we are going to continue with the film, this is a key part now. What will I do? Right. We have to document this, even though we don't have to decide right now whether we're going to use it. And there was only one way to do it, which is as it was the next evening, and Mike was sober by then, we both picked up our cell phones, our iPhones, and started talking to each other about it. And I said, honey, we don't need to use this. We don't know what we're going to do with it, but we need to capture it because the anxiety and the emotion of right now will never be captured again, yeah. unless you do this again, yeah. you bonehead. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You moron. <laughs> yeah. Yes, capital M. Um, so you're in the middle of the book. You've decided, yeah. to, ma- you've decided to make a film. You've started to sh- shoot Mike's five years into recovery? Five and a half. Five and yeah. a half years and yeah. has a relapse. Yeah. And it, well, it was really spawned, I think. And one of the scientists who we interviewed said this. It's not in the film just because he ran out of time. When he had his motorcycle accident, he mm. ended up in the ER brought by ambulance. And um, that was the place that we calculated he went to 31 times oh. on his downfall. Wow. Yeah. And each time, most often, he was treated quite with humiliation. And as you saw in the film, his ex-wife supported that, right? You know, if they were lucky, they got, he was given an Ativan and a bus pass. Ativan and off you go. Yeah. yeah, and here's a guy who had two life-threatening seizures during that period. But, uh, you know, the feeling in ERs is just, well, these people are not really sick. We have more sick people than these people make a choice, right? What, so pray I, tell, it good is it giving somebody <laughs> Ativan, by the way? Which well, is what a it tamaz- does is Tamazepam it, family, right? Yeah. Highly will, addictive medications. It is. It, it, I mean, uh, really good addiction doctors will say this, is, this, is pro- this in itself is problematic. In the short term, it diminishes that uh, severe anxiety and jitters mm. and all the stuff that can actually lead into a seizure. So in the short term, it's okay, but in the long term, it doesn't solve the problem. Sure, yeah. And it may, that, that whole experience in Mike's head, uh, going back in as an injured person was triggering he just came home and he went into the fridge and he opened up a bottle of wine and drank and he hadn't you know he's he's poured me wine glasses he had disinterest especially in the last three or four years so it was a real shock i mean it was absolutely stunned when i figured it out so up until this point you had no sort of reason to believe that you were going to wind up here oh no i was totally smug (laughs) <laughs> well, you mentioned yeah, that in the film, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You're doing great, buddy. I mean, this is awesome. This is never going to happen to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I learned. I learned, and, you know, I just think, and I even even before the relapse, we'd filmed a few of the experts, and they said, yeah, no, it's a chronic relapsing disorder. That's part of how we identify it. And still it didn't twig with me. Oh, yeah, this could happen to Mike. And Mike was terrified, you know, when it happened. Yeah, no, it must have been, I mean, on so many levels, pretty terrifying, I would think. He thought, first of all, that I was going to kick him out. Of course. The farthest thing from my brain. And that he was on that downward, very desperately lonely spiral again. We were so fortunate that we found a new treatment that works and works incredibly well for him. Okay, so so now we're on another path here. I got to go down this road. So farthest from your brain. The idea yeah. of kicking him out. I bet up until that point, he hadn't experienced that kind of inclusion, that kind of an embrace. No, and I do, I mean, to be fair to his family, early in the process, 
they tried very hard to help him until they couldn't. And mm. then it became, I think, an ever more fearful, desperate, um, anxious period in his family's life where they could see, I mean, he was their financial bedrock, right? Right, yes, yep. They, uh, we, Mike and I are in a different situation. I'm already well established. I don't have any other dependents. And I think that I had learned, we'd started re- doing research on this craft, that if I could support him through this, not shame and blame him, maybe not even talk about it for you know, right. the rest of the day until he feels better and then he can bring it up. And, you know, I, I just learned to steal myself and say, whatever this is, Mike, we're, we're going to have to go through this together. I well, what I love about this story is you don't tell much about your story, which I guess you, you, you some filmmakers do and other documentarians mm-hmm. don't. You know, some sort of Errol Morris sticks himself in the films. and but No, like. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> CBC made me. <laughs> right. But... But I think what's interesting to me, you know, shame for me is a theme throughout this film. And, and yeah, maybe that's true. just because of how it plays out in my own life or in f- my yeah. friends' lives or, you know, yeah. I see it in others. And how I've, my wife and I, Elizabeth, have so tried not to use that as a parental tool. And I think, you know, so many parents have and still do. And, and this idea of guilt and so on. And what's the damage that, that we're doing to one another and, frankly, to ourselves? So I think there's something there, Maureen. What, wh- why didn't you go there? Right? Why did you? You obviously love Mike unconditionally, and you've you've embraced him and included him in a way that's not based on his behavior, and that to me is fascinating. Why didn't I go there? Uh, because I'd heard really mostly from the experts that it it doesn't work, and by then I'd already understood hijacked reward circuitry. Right? Hmm. Like there was an element of what I understood about Mike's brain that truly he could not help it. Right. And he didn't plan to, you know, throw a bomb or a firecracker into our lives. And I really knew that if I did this, I, he could end up back in that place. Mm. And the burden of that on my conscience, right? you know, I, I, knowing what I knew, based upon the research, couldn't go there. You know, my dad drank too, and this is actually a really good lesson for me. Um, I would get mad at my dad. And my dad was not a, my dad was a happy drinker, but he was a drinker. Right. And sometimes he would be a little bit, I think, belittling of my mom after he'd been drinking. Hmm. Interesting. And I would be completely, I would leave. I'd get in the car and leave the house, or if we're out at a restaurant, I'm not going to be, I was very judgmental about my dad. Hmm. And I think it's almost like, my dad's dead and he's teaching me something. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like there's, there is no shaming somebody into health. It never works. There's no, a, it, yeah. There's just, it doesn't work. We, do you, do and, you, you, know, we, we, you are probably about my age, and I think we all probably grew up where in a very shame-based yes, culture. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder what damage it does to the soul, what the damage it does to our personalities, our ability to love others, our ability to include others. I mean, it's just kind of that, that circle, that spiral downwards yeah. just continues, right? Yeah. It yeah. Just, yeah, and I, I think um, even before I met Mike, I'd come to a place in my life where I didn't want to be unkind to anybody, ever, mm. especially my daughters, right? It was time to just, you know, these people are in your life and they're a great gift. And you, do you really want to spend one second where you make them feel bad? Yeah. And it, I think that I'd hit that sort of philosophical bent in my life right about the time when I met Mike. 
But I think th- it, was, it was a deeper part of, of me by that time. Maureen, do you think Mike was testing you in any way, you oh. know, subconsciously, mm. you know, on some whole other level that he's not even aware of? I don't think so. Mm. I think... I don't think he has, I don't think he had the conscious ability. I really don't. I feel that whatever happened that day came out of the blue. Well, it, you know, you talk about him going to that. What did you say? 30, 31 times would have been a good title. Times. Would have been a great title for the film, by the way. Yeah, third, third, the number 31. <laughs> um, but imagine what must have been um, dredged up from 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 that experience yeah you, know, you mean me- from for him and for him yeah, yeah the memory the, the the stuff that he wouldn't even be, i mean the tacit sort of yeah. awareness that that would have been going on in his system emotionally and spiritually yeah. and all these things that you know you can't even put your finger on i mean i, I yeah. have no idea right so uh, i don't know how we could ever have any kind of sort of comprehension of that I think that whatever happened in the ER that day activated a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more nightmares after that. Is that right, eh? Yeah, and I think, you know, there were a fair number of nightmares when we first met, when he was just coming out of the, you know, recovery house, prison hell, right? And, but then they kind of went away. But after the relapse, they, they came back, and there was a lot of, you know, agitation, screaming out in nonsensical language uh, for you know, quite a few months. It's diminished since, but I think it created a whole other... It was like just going back into a really bad time in his life again. Right. And, you know, I think a lot of... Sometimes his um, nightmares are about his boys, about losing his boys. I think that's the dominant fear in his life because the loss of them was almost too much to bear first time around. And I think that one of the reasons that he's so passionately committed to getting over the relapse quickly is to maintain that relationship with his boys. What about your own sense of boundaries? You know, I mean, I guess this is a question, I guess, about that whole... Why are you you so smart? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. I I I read a lot of books. How's that? Yes. Yeah. Uh... Thank you. Um, so, yeah, no, but uh, it, it, you know, so many people wouldn't put up with this, right? Well, and I, and I, I you know, the whole, the, that whole yeah. sort of doormat philosophy, you know, yeah. and I'm yeah. not saying, I'm not saying that Mike treated you that way at all. I'm just saying he seems like an incredibly sweet guy, but, but it, most of us don't go there. That's, that's what I'm, you know, as the international development guy, as the social justice mm-hmm. guy, social change guy over here, trying to get people excited about places like Cambodia and Burkina Faso and literacy in Malawi, mm-hmm. most people don't give a rat's ass after a certain point. Sorry for the cynicism, but it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, I'll write you a $50 tax deductible check. Sure, I'll uh, uh, pin a picture of a, a, a sponsored child to my bulletin board or, or put it on our fridge, but we're not going to go a whole lot deeper than that. And and I get why that is the case, but it frustrates the heck out of me sometimes. Yeah, I'm not, I understand that. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not yeah, getting... I yeah, so there, you, I don't know. Do you, do you have a screwed up sense of boundaries, Maureen? Is, uh, um, <laughs> you know what? To be fair, I think that uh, people in my past and my dear friends might have said in the past, yeah, that I think... I think that I was born with too much empathy on one mm. level. I really do. Wow. Um, and I've felt that it has caused me grief at some points in my life. What I have learned, again, from the community reinforcement and family training program, and also from a great therapist here, mm-hmm. 
is how to create boundaries in this world. It's not about being a doormat. It is about saying, I'll give you an example. So Mike drank that first night really badly. And then there was like a night or two over the next couple of months. And I learned to say, you know what? Because he's not the same person Mm -hmm. when that happened. Mm -hmm. It's not pleasant. So I say, you know what? It's not a good time right now for us to talk. I'm going to go sleep in the other bedroom. It's not punitive and it's not permanent. And let's um, let's talk up in the morning, right? right. I just keep right. out of the way. Right, right. And the next day, we went on a ferry trip over to Victoria to meet our to see our grandson. And we didn't talk about it until the way back. Interesting. And and it's just it's a way of it's a way of like why do you why would anybody want to talk to anybody when they're drunk? Why would you engage, right? right, right. It, it's kind of like a, like a, it's an exercise in stupidity. So these are the kinds of things I learned. And I also, it's one of the things I really want to talk about with you is this new website, addictionthenextstep.com. We got a $400,000 grant from the TELUS Health and Wellness Fund. And we created this site where, in collaboration with the Center for Motivation and Change in New York City, we created a site where we've got an online therapy tool so people can learn craft. And it's as simple as we call it almost dial a dilemma. Mm-hmm. There's 20 scenarios. You pick the one that sounds closest to your situation. Help, my 17-year-old son is using again. He's on his way home. My husband wants to kick him out, says it's time for tough love. Right. I say no. What do I do? Right. You, you click on that scenario, and wow. the tool takes you on this interactive journey to learn the new way of communication, to learn how to set boundaries, to keep all of these things in perspective while you get your child what they need. And in craft, seven out of ten treatment-resistant people will go into treatment after the family has been in for as little as five or six sessions. Well, It's not Al-Anon. It's not detached with love. It's stay invested with love and boundaries. There's something there's something that strikes me that's profoundly relational about that. Mm-hmm. It, it, Even it though is, it's a digital it's a digital platform, um, by it, the sounds it, of it, has it has it, it has has it been released yet, or is that something you're in the middle of kind of constructing? It's going it? to be released on January 21st. Wow. Oh, okay. Well, I'll send you the link. Oh, please do. Yeah. So that, yeah. Yeah. And you know, we hope the Center for Motivation and Change. There was a great article on them uh, in New York City. And we found them through a book they wrote called Beyond Addiction. And when Mike was getting well and we started writing the book, he would follow me around the house with this book going, it says here that blah, 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 blah. So we finally, when it got to the time to make the film, the CBC said there was a shortfall, not a huge in the budget. They said, go to the TELUS Fund. They will put money towards the broadcast, but also give money for a digital tool. And Mike and I thought, what's really needed in the world? Mm. There's a lot of apps for addicts, but there's nothing for their families. Mm. Mm. So we, they funded us. We're ecstatic. That's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. Um, tell me a little bit about how, as a filmmaker, you've made a lot of movies over the years. Uh, you've been doing this for uh, over 25 years. Is that fair? I left the CBC permanently in 1999. Okay. So you've had a... I was doing that kind of thing within the CBC for many years, yeah. Have you ever had the experience of working so close to somebody you love like this? 
No, no. It was really it's the it has been the hardest thing to do in my entire professional career, and I don't know that I could do it again or mm. would do it again. It was really hard, really, really hard. What what do you what do you learn about yourself along the way? What do you what do you edit out <laughs> oh, <laughs> that we that we didn't see? He's <laughs> like you ask really good questions. Um, you don't you don't see me in trauma. You don't see right, me right. really not knowing what to do next. Mm. You know you you don't see you don't see the muck because mm. I don't think I can I couldn't have I couldn't have split my brain in two enough to know how to film that. Also, there is only 42 minutes, right? Right. And I thought, I mean, I need enough of a uh, personal story for a dramatic spine that the CBC now wants. They wanted my perspective once the relapse happened, right? Because they felt an awful lot of viewers end up in my shoes. Um, so, yeah, that didn't, that didn't make it in. And, you know, some really great science had to come out mm. just because of the change in perspective. And, you know, I think it's, I think in retrospect, you know, my partner, Helen, probably should have come in and had done some interviews. Oh, okay. Interesting. You know, because Just I was... Just to bring a different, uh, a different yeah. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, when I had, and also she was a godsend, as was Sudando, the exec at the CBC. You know, we sent her an early rough cut. And she sent back the most gracious, respectful, and provocative notes, right? Mm. And Helen did a very similar, played a very similar role in the process, which, you know, made for a better film, really challenged me. The, um, one, of the, one of the things as a, I guess you could call, uh, I'm a hopeful cynic. Uh, I'm, mm. a bit of, I'm a bit of an existentialist. I believe in, you know, freedom, <laughs> choice, and responsibility. Yeah. And, and yet... I'm not this idea of dualism the way the way we seem to acquiesce towards plus and minus up and mm-hmm. down yes mm-hmm. and no and, mm-hmm. and it which is the antithesis of of an embrace it's the antithesis of inclusion it's mm-hmm. on the other side of finding the connecting points and the community and so on and so anyway all that to say so so I wonder where would Mike say if he was listening in if he was a part of this conversation would he say you know, yes, this is a, a medical issue. It's genetic. It's it's mm-hmm. it's nature nurture. But you know what? I, I I'm kind of culpable too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a, there was a certain choice in there. Um, mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting. Um, the, the the part where they talked about uh, was it his brother talking about the root beer? Oh yeah. 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 So they're talking about the root beer. <laughs> yeah, they're from Ed's, yeah. and I mean that's just you know, pretty idle. That could happen to anybody. That's just one yep. of those things that happened as kids. And, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a position that others aren't because of this predisposition. Yeah. But exactly. I, yeah, yeah. What, what, what would Mike say about that? That I guess that AA like nature, and I'm not talking about shame or guilt here. I'm just yeah. talking about saying, you know what? I gotta, I gotta buckle up here myself <laughs> or anti yeah. up, you know? Yeah. Um, he, he would say it was very difficult to come to terms that he has a flawed brain. Mm. And he does yeah. believe that there is part of his brain that doesn't act like other people's brains. Hmm. And, you know, we interviewed a great geneticist. He's not in the film. He's one of the people we had to cut out. And he actually is living on cbc.ca on the Nature of Things page about the genetic factors, right? And he said, you know, 
the biggest thing he we asked him what advice would he give Mike's boys. Right. And he said, well, you know, if I were one of your sons, I would recognize that there's a 60 cent, 60% chance that this is genetic. You're, you are carrying a heavy genetic load. Right. And here's what I'd watch for. And he's done something. I uh, did this amazing study, and I can send any of this stuff if you need it, David. Over 35 years, he followed 450 men hmm. whose parents had been alcoholics, one of them, usually a father. And what he found was that there are certain characteristics that all of these young men have that predispose them to having a drinking problem. And, you know, those characteristics are the kinds of things that Mike's sons need to be aware of. One of them is called being a low responder, which means Mm. very early in life you can drink everybody else under the table. Right. So he says, Mike's sons, these are things you need to know. And if you're going to be a drinker, be a drink counter. Know that three is maybe where you should stop. It's good. So stuff that is, you know, puts in perspective that you you have a severe genetic load, but you also have a choice. You also have a choice, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're not, this isn't either or. Uh, it, you know what, it's not, a, it's not early, you have a choice. Once you know, as I think I said in the film, if you do something 100 times in your computer, the computer doesn't change. But if you slam your dopamine receptors 10,000 times with booze, you have changed the structure of your brain. And then it's not about choice. You're, you're hooped, buddy. <laughs> your yeah. brain's going to yeah. do something yeah. else. So, so there's a real practical side to a film like this. I mean, especially yeah. airing on, a, on a, a, a CBC and then David Suzuki's Nature of yeah. Things. There's, a, there's yeah. an ethos. There's a culture there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So the, the thing that pops to my mind is the, the phrase that came out of the film about... Um, uh, where doctors are sort of pushing AA mm-hmm. without yeah. this un- without without this better understanding. I will never forget Maureen going in, doing a test with my GP, and I'm sure I've talked about this on a podcast before, but 10 questions to determine whether or not I was depressed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I remember getting yeah. down and going, really, are you kidding me? That's that's all you're going to ask me? Like, isn't isn't there more to this? Like, it was just, he looked at it and he went, oh, I guess you're not depressed. And I went, well, actually, I've got some kind of experiential evidence over here to suggest otherwise. <laughs> anyway, you guys talk about medical malpractice. Yeah. And, um, or, or at least somebody did in the film. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, not, not, that, not that that's a, I mean, is, is that one of your hopes with the film like this? That, yeah, that, that I mean, gonna... that is, that's the key. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. one of the key messages that we want to say, if the CMA and the American Medical Association consider a disease, Let's treat it like such, yeah. because when we do, we will stop the carnage. At least we'll pr- hmm. d- make a dramatic dent in it, right? When you've got Columbia University's report closing the gap, saying the quality of most addiction medicine uh, in the U.S. is akin to medical malpractice, when you have the head of the Betty Ford Center yeah. saying that he set up this foundation to prevent the harm being done by doctors to their patients, we don't have that sentence being said in the context of other life-threatening disorders. And that's the key message. And I've got something wonderful from Dr. Bernard LaFall, who's the head of the Centers for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. He sent me some pamphlets this morning, which by all means he wants out in the world. I'm going to mm-hmm. put them on cbc.ca. They're pamphlets about the drugs that are now mm. available. Some are off-label uses. They're early in research, and some are a lot further down the road in research. And doctors don't know this stuff, and Mike's clients will, he will leave, you know, he'll, they'll leave his office, and he, they'll, he'll say, 
ask your doctor for this, ask mm. your doctor for that. Mm. They come back and go, my doctor says he's not even interested in talking about this. Yeah, not so interested in So now these me. pamphlets yeah. can go into everybody's hands. Yeah, that's great. These drugs need to be out there as widely used as heart medication. Well, it's just interesting, you know, kind of coming full circle back to my question to you about the whole chronic thing, you know, mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder if, you know, the, the medical community still sees, still, frankly, sorry for being kind of cliche, but they still see some of the stuff as either or. If, if, you know, they, they don't, you know what, they don't see it as relational. So we got this, yeah. we got this one approach. If that doesn't work, well, you're screwed. Here's your out of end. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, that's the, I guess the second message in the film, which is, we have a toolkit, an right. ever-expanded yep. toolkit. Yep. AA is certainly a part of that toolkit. It's a fabulous thing for so many people, but we just need everybody to know there are other options, and a lot of people don't know. And here's a really interesting thing. I think science is going to eclipse a lot of these arguments. Mm. There's a Dr. Anthony Phillips at UBC who's working on uh, it's a genetic uh, basically changing some of the way that receptors work in the brain so that, for instance, people who have to live on chronic pain medication, terrible back problems, they can actually, they hope, he hopes within a decade, to give those people another medication that will essentially short-circuit the ability to become addicted in the first place. Right, right. So these things are in the pipeline. Wow. I think that there's a lot of promise a decade, a decade or two from now. Right now, we're still in the weeds. Well, it makes, it makes you kind of wonder, too, what other doors it will open medically as well with respect to, I mean, when I heard dopamine, I immediately thought other neurological disorders, Parkinson's and, you know, things like that. I mean, that 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 that's kind of connected, right? I mean, it's a yeah, pr- pretty so complicated place up there. <laughs> really nifty research. Wish we'd had time to get it in the Yeah, time. yeah. It was at Cambridge, okay. and we were filming in Cambridge. <clears throat> Parkinson's researchers found they've been following a large cohort of people with Parkinson's. Hmm. When the disease causes the brain to deteriorate to a certain point, a decent, substantial number of their people they're following develop compulsive gambling disorders. Wow. <laughs> so there is some connection so at to least they dopamine. Might, so the message is that at least they might die rich. Is that what you're saying, Mark? <laughs> what we're saying is that we just are beginning to understand the role dopamine plays. Yeah. And that if somebody is su- suffering from an illness as devastating as Parkinson's, can have somehow their reward circuitry hijacked, that's really not a choice yeah, they're making. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> that was to me the most profound thing. Wow. Like, holy shit, if that's yeah. happening to people with Parkinson's, can we not see a continuum here for people who battle sure. addictions? Well, you know what? We've got to wrap it up shortly. I'm so sorry. Tell us where, what's Mike up to, uh, you know, uh, in what's next for him, for you, for, you know, the, the books coming out, the films coming out, um, um, what we're hoping to do, we haven't had time to organize it yet, we're going to go to uh, Palm Springs in March. Mm. And on the way down, I'd like to drive and stop in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, L.A., Palm Springs, show the film, and do a little bit of a book reading. The book mm. is available as of February in the U.S. Oh, okay. So that's next. Oh, good for you. Well, that's amazing. Well, thanks for joining us today. The film's called Wasted. Uh, it is... Uh, premiering, I guess you could say, on CBC's Nature of Things 
January 21st, there's a book called Wasted and Alcoholic Therapists Fight for Recovery in a Flawed Treatment System. The next step is the website. There's a lot going on here. Um, I hope uh, I hope a lot of people get to see this film, Maureen, and I think it's going to continue to have quite, quite the legacy. Uh, I hope so. Thank yeah. you very much. I really appreciate a very enlightened conversation. Thank oh, you. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. All right. Bye, David. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.